When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So Sugi, we've done several episodes addressing horror, but isn't it true that you're actually kind of basically un- unable to watch or read horror? So the word in the script is chicken shit. Well, I was trying to give you a break. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that, but I, I will not give myself that break. I am actually kind of chicken shit about horror. And the only horror movies I watch are Jordan Peele's. And basically, if it's anything else, I, I won't. I kind of won't do it. Um, and I knew that when, when Get Out's trailer came out, I was like, oh, my God, there's no way I'm not going to see this. So I tried to prepare myself by reading the whole Wikipedia entry, just spoiling the shit out of the plot before going to try to stave off the fear. But that didn't help, which I should have known because I'm always telling my students, it's like, oh, like the more the character knows, the scarier it is. Or like the more the more the reader knows, the scarier it is. So I just screamed ahead of everyone else. Like I was like, I don't know, the train going around the bend or whatever. Like I was out <laughs> in the burbs in a theater full of older white people and I was always like screaming like two to three minutes before everyone else and people would just turn around and stare at me. It was awesome. Um, you can't imagine a more awkward viewing experience. Did you see Get Out? Yeah, I did. Although I avoided it for a long time because I have allergic reactions to horror films myself. But then when I saw it, I did not. I mean, it was scary, but it's not scary in a way that made me. It was scary in a smart way. And, and I, so I didn't actually find it like it wasn't as bad as other things that I try not to see. Um, and it was it was a great movie. Um, but movies like Get Out and Us, also directed by Peel, as well as recent films like Candyman and Them and Lovecraft Country and uh, Victor Laval, who's been on this show before, has his uh, book The Changeling is, is coming, is out on Apple yeah. TV right now. Um, these horror films and TV shows made by directors of color and, and from from books written by writers of color using horror to comment on issues of class and race are a dominant genre in American culture right now. As the LA Times put it in a recent article about the writer uh, Tananarive Du, black horror is, quote, unquote, having a big moment. That's totally true. I think, you know, not only that, but in October, which just ended, that was that was actually Black Horror Month. So we figured it would be a good time to talk about this genre and why exactly it is so important in American culture right now. And to do that, we're going to talk to my friend, the writer Leslie Arima, who actually went to see Us With Me and was equally scared. So was Leslie scared to the scared to see the movie? I mean, did you guys help each other out at all? 
Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the idea was like we were at the same level of fearfulness or we, we sort of spoke the same language of fear. And so we were OK in each other's company. And, um, you know, she was apprehensive, too. And now she interestingly, now she actually writes horror. Um, her story, Invasion of the Baby Snatchers, was just published in this great new anthology of black horror writing, which is called Out Here Screaming. Wait a second. Who's the editor? It is edited by Jordan Peele. And it also has a story by Tanana Reeve Which seems perfect for what we're doing today. I think we can officially call this a zeitgeist moment. That's right. Watching and discussing Us with Leslie made my whole experience of horror so much better, um, by which I mean like tolerable because I was basically terrified. But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I have a much better understanding of why black horror has been so effective in speaking to our particular cultural movement. So today, Leslie's joining us to discuss the anthology, her contribution to it and the role of black horror writing today. Leslie Nika Rima was born in the UK and grew up in Nigeria and wherever else her father was stationed for work. Her stories have been honored with a National Magazine Award, a Commonwealth Short Story Prize, and an O. Henry Award. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, McSweeney's, Granta, and has received support from the Elizabeth George Foundation, United States Artists, and McDowell. She was chosen for the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35, and her debut collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky, won the 2017 Kirkus Prize and the 2017 New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, and was selected for the New York Times PBS Book Club, among other honors. She lives in Minneapolis and is working on a novel about you. Leslie, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. So you're in this new Jordan Peele anthology, which is so amazing. And I was scared shitless several times reading it. And uh, we know him best as a writer and director now, but it's fascinating to think about him also as an editor and curator of others' works. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up involved in this project and what that process was like? Uh, yes. So I got a mysterious email. Um, I say mysterious. So an email from um, John Joseph Adams. And honestly, if anyone but him had sent this email, I'd have thought it was a scam. What he said was, um, I want to tell you about a project, but you have to sign this NDA first before I can even tell you what it is. And I'd worked with John before and it, you know, and so I knew, you know, I was familiar with him. And so anyone else, like, you know, someone who I hadn't known sending that to me, like, what is this? Move to spam. And so, um, and so, you know, so he, um, and so once I signed the NDA, he let me know that, you know, this anthology of um, Black horror being put together by um, Jordan Peele and would I like to contribute to it? Um, And my answer was an immediate um, yes, of course. Um, And so so I did. Um, You know, the process of the writing the story and having the story edited, you know, John is a fantastic editor. And so that was for, you know, that was never a problem. Um, But I, you know, for me, writing the piece of horror was quite a bit of a challenge because I don't actually read horror. I scare very easily. And so I don't read or watch horror just like my own self-preservation. And so, um, but I thought if I'm going to write horror, then I want to familiar my, familiarize myself with this genre. And so I just sort of went on a horror reading binge and, you know, I read, you know, five to seven books. And so I just dedicated um, essentially three months 
just to reading horror. And so I read so much horror <laughs> so quickly, you know, lost sleep, <laughs> but also really, really enjoyed myself and realized that, oh, I am missing out on quite a bit of um, just this fantastic genre by not um, and so engaging with it. And now it is one of my favorite genres. Well, that may answer my next question, actually, because um, we referenced an earlier L.A. Times article on black horror by uh, Tanana Reeve Dew. And she said that during her undergraduate days at Northwestern, like here's her quote, admiring Toni Morrison's beloved got me praised in my writing classes. But then she goes on to add, liking Stephen King got me raised eyebrows. I wondered if you're in your early reading or like, you know, study of literature, like you notice that duality, like it wasn't cool or maybe thought of as artistic to like horror as, as much as Toni Morrison. Right. You know, I have never been a respecter of genres. I read everything, science fiction, fantasy, romance, even, which, you know, gets a very bad rap. Um, you know, um, you know, of course, you know, capital L literature um, and, you know, I had a very unfortunate race. Yeah, like I just read everything um, except for horror, which just really terrified me. Um, and so I'm finally happy to have sort of sort of breached first barrier. Um, and then over the pandemic, I also started reading mystery and suspense, which I also avoided from the same reason that I avoid horror, which is that I just my tender heart. <laughs> we were we were talking a little bit earlier about you know um, I had this experience of watching Get Out. And like, I was just kind of not with the crowd that I, I was not with the right company. Um, I needed someone who was like-minded. And so that, you know, you and I like basically ran away from AWP Portland to watch us. And we were both kind of like sitting there like, oh my God. Um, so in practical terms, how do you go from being like, where do you go from being fearful to writing it yourself? And, and as you are writing it yourself, what is your relationship with the fear in your own story? Um, I actually found the, the experience of writing a, a story of horror to be very painful at first and then very delightful. And it was very painful um, when I, I had a sort of a ghost story in my folder and I thought, oh, ghosts, horror, this is totally, I can just totally make this a scary story. And so I tried to write this ghost story that I had sort of in my folder as a a piece of horror, but it resisted it at every turn. It was more of a tender ghost story than a horror ghost story. And so I kept trying to make it, make sort of make horror happen with the story and he just refused. And then I read two books, one The Nesting by C.J. Cook and Leech by Hiron Ennis. And um, both of those books, so they were both very voice driven and Leech in particular was very funny. And so I was like, oh, um, I can do funny, right? Um, um, and Leech was also body horror. It's like, oh, I can do body horror. Um, and so um, once I sort of arrived at that, okay, again, let's do body horror and let's try and do something that's a little bit more voicey, then it became a much easier process. Um, but with that, with that story, I, I also went back into my folder and I had sort of a set of a, the a beginning of a story that started off with a woman giving birth and um, a bunch of soldiers with rifles sort of trained at her to, you know, basically uh, to figure out whether the, the entity she just gave birth to was a human baby or not a human baby. Um, and so I sort of reimagined that 
world that's this sort of voicey body horror um, piece. And that's what ended up being Invasion of the Baby Snatchers, which is a story about aliens invading us through pregnancies. Um, and which is also viscerally terrifying. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I wonder if you would read a bit of that story for us. Uh, yes, I will. And I will set this up. So this is, um, I'm going to read just two very brief sections, one from the beginning and one from shortly after the beginning, and I'll provide um, context for the piece. All right. Invasion of the Baby Snatchers. Used to be, you could tell an alien pregnancy from a human one with your naked eye back before they figured people out. Back when post-hysterectomy rooms ballooned overnight or an entire nursing home of geriatrics would be expecting and everyone's like, expecting what? And sending the troops. Your baby was born with a literal cow head, 14 stomachs. That doesn't seem right. Stop counting its hoofs, heaves, hoofuses, and call in the damn troops. They had no idea how our bodies worked. It was almost funny. But of course they learned. The woman looks so much like her file photo, it surprises me. No tired creases, no eyes shadowed by exhaustion, none of the tells of a lived life that cameras collude to hide. She is as lovely as her home. Aside from her very pregnant belly, she could have stepped out of the photo and settled into the wingback chair she now occupies. There's nothing of the last four years on her, even her hands are soft and neat. Unlikely, then, that Olivia Schultz has been roughing it off grid. Are you sure I can't get you anything? She's all smiling solicitude. The arched doorway behind her makes for a charming frame. A few years ago, I might have bought it, but that bloom has withered. I've been punched, kicked, bitten. I have punched, bitten, kicked. Two agents armed to the molars now accompany me on every intake. More if I ask. The optics of armed security dragging expectant mothers into agency fans isn't great, but after Miami, no one's complaining. And I will skip forward to Miami. They got better at making us. For one, they now stick to women of childbearing age. The days of culling a herd of dudes who found themselves seven months along after a guy's night out are gone. Even then, the incubated specimens were always a little off. Not cow's head off, but shit like not having any joints, we called those starfishes, or having way too many, we called those what the fucks. Lots of stillborns with molars in their knees and toenails where their eyes should be. Then two years ago at a Florida hospital, a newborn unfolds his jaw and eats half a nurse's face. And you think, it's Miami, it happens, until the video comes in. 
There's a still from that first clip that ends up as the unofficial agency screensaver. Just after the cameraman tells her exhausted wife to smile, just after she directs the nurse to hold the baby up so relatives scattered across the country can see what Tallahassee girls could do, just when things turn. The cherub-gremlin dichotomy of a new child's face interrupted by a peculiar assembly of too many teeth. Mouth open so wide that chin obscures belly button. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Um, Suki has gone to do shots of bourbon in her closet. So I'm going to ask the next question. Um, uh, how did you arrive at this, uh, you know, twist on the classic uh, trope of body snatchers? The story plays with our ideas and fears about genetic in engineering in futuristic ways which call back to histories of states and other abusing bodies, particularly those belonging to marginalized people, the state abusing bodies, uh, particularly those belonging to marginalized people for their own ends. Um, in the foreword of the book, Peel writes about oubliettes, prisons that cause you to become invisible and forgotten, a la the sunken place and get out. In your story, the oubliette seems like the narrator's body or this mother's body. Um, is that the source of the horror in your story, the idea that your own body as can become a prison in which you become irrelevant? Um, yes, because my personal oblivion is pregnancy and the idea of motherhood. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I was going to say, so, when you said like idea. aliens were being born, I'm like, isn't that happening normally? That's how a lot of people feel about being pregnant. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I'm, um, you know I'm, I'm at the age where a lot of my friends... Um, have are having kids or have had kids um, recently, and so um, you know, I find you know, so you know, I sort of I think about pregnancy a lot, and it is one of those things that um, that sort of terrifies me a bit, both in the physical aspect of it. You know, one of my friends um, developed uh, an autoimmune disorder, you know, based on her after her pregnancy that just like never went away. She just has this now. Um, another friend, you know, her feet grew two sizes and never went down. So she couldn't, I was like, oh, all my shoes, are you kidding me? You know, so just very, you know, the, the, you know there's the changes in the body. And then there's also just the uh, way that society sort of treats women who are mothers and the idea that, oh, this is all you are now, right? Like you are only allowed to sort of be, you know, this mother person and that is your prime primary duty there's something about that sort of being subsumed by this presence in your body just you know both in the physical and the social level just really terrifies me and so that was my personal affiliate and so that was where that sort of um you know and you know previous to this i had only ever accidentally been horror i never did so intentionally and my accidental horror was also about you know giving birth to children and so I was like, okay leslie there's clearly something going on here um and so you know um and so it just worked out that this was where sort of, you know, when it came to, um, uh, you know, articulating fears in a way that um, that could be sort of you know, outwardly scary. I thought, okay, this is, you know, I feel this so viscerally that I think that this is, this is something that I'd be able to um, depict on the page in a terrifying way. It's genuinely terrifying. Um, the first time I read the story, I was reading it aloud with someone else and just we were sort of taking turns shrieking a little bit um <laughs> and anyway so in the in the introduction to the book 
Um, Jordan Peele writes, I view horror as catharsis through entertainment. It's a way to work through your deepest pain and fear. But for black people, that isn't possible. And for many decades, wasn't possible without the stories being told in the first place. And he describes the anthology as like 19 personalized sunken places. Um, yes. I like how I like how your cat is adding atmosphere to this episode. Um <laughs> Um, or maybe that's the alien from her story. I mean, <laughs> right. we've never had such good sound effects. Anyway, so I, I thought I thought that this just that this this quote by Jordan Peele was so interesting because it it kind of means that representation in horror is maybe even more than in other genres, kind of a matter of emotional survival. And I was wondering if you thought, I mean, is that why black horror has become such a dominant genre right now, or are there other reasons to kind of go along with that? You know, I don't know enough to answer that definitively, but I always think of what is really funny is sort of like the idea and, you know, sort of you know, Black people have had this joke amongst ourselves and then you've seen it play out in some horror movies where it's like, oh, you know, the white folks always go towards the noise. <laughs> And the fact you're like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna check that out. I'm gonna, you know, and this is like that's sort of almost um, uh, a meme at this point, right? Well, that's the and Eddie so Murphy the, routine it, that that the name of the movie right? Get Out comes from, yes, right? That yes. was a great routine yeah. that I used to quote all the time with my friends when we were in college. In the Amityville Horror, the ghost told them to get out the house. White people stayed in there. Now that's a hit and a half for your ass. A ghost say, "Get the fuck out." I would just tip the fuck out the door. They walked and looked in the toilet bowl, was blood in the toilet. I said, that's peculiar. <laughs> I would have been in the house and said, oh, baby, this is beautiful. We got a chandelier hanging up here, kids outside playing. It's a beautiful neighborhood. We ain't got nothing to wear. I really love them. This is really nice. Get out. Too bad we can't stay, baby. Yes, and so, so that was very, like, he very much articulated some, a conversation that we've had, you know, sort of amongst ourselves. And so, you know, and so um, I think it's this idea that, oh, like, life um, as a Black person is scary enough that, you know, if there's a noise in the dark, you don't go seeking it out because it's just like, ah, you know, like, that's, we're, I'm just going to avoid that and sort of maintain, like, this calm space that I have, I currently have. Um, when the and voice so, in the house know, says, so, get out. You get out. <laughs> you get out, exactly, right? I'm not, I'm not going to go hunt down the source, <laughs> right? It's, oh, the call's coming from inside the house. Well, I'm going to get out of the house. So that, how's that? Um, and so, um, and so, you know, so it's interesting sort of seeing this, um, you know, renaissance of the core. Because I'm thinking about, like, you know, um, in the, the 70s or the 80s, or maybe even uh, backdating this more than I should. But, you know, the Candyman and... Um, Oh gosh, what was the other sort of classic black horror movie that I'm forgetting now? But like you know, so you know, so like this is this feels like very much this, is, this feels very new and like very much like a an interest a, ren a renaissance in a very interesting way. And it's really interesting how I'm not sure that Get Out could have happened with uh, outside of this particular or outside of the particular moment that it um it became a phenomenon because um the I feel like the general public was familiar enough with some of the like, conversations about race for that to be impactful in a very interesting way. Whereas if it had come out maybe 30 years ago, I'm not sure that it would have had the same um, um, same impact, right? Because we, you know, the, our, the conversations were happening in smaller spaces um, than, than they did, you know, than they are um, now when they were, you know, when um, Get Out um, first came out. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Like, thinking about this, it's so amazing, right? There is also kind of the joke about, you know, if you're watching a horror movie and there is, like, the black friend from, like, a certain era, like, you knew that the black friend was going to die. It was like, um, like the people on Star Trek wearing red shirts. You were like, those people are goners. Um, boy, I hope I got that right. Otherwise, all of the Trekkies who listen to our show will, will write back to me. But anyway, but it's just like, like the person who kind of is right. And, and in retrospect, that seems so ridiculous because probably that would have been the person with the most common sense who would have been like, don't run towards the noise actually. Um, so I remember you telling me that in the editorial process for this story, you'd had to kind of nip off, um, a, a little a little bit that went past your actual ending to the story because of length and and we wondered if we might offer our listeners an exclusive glimpse into this um yes so there was a very there was a pretty strict word and my story was very was pushing against that word limit and I sort of had that conversation with myself where do I really want to be the jerk who's like can I have more space you know and so I was like no I don't and so I sort of found what felt like the most natural start um that where okay like you know this ending is a little abrupt but I think but it can it, there's something cohesive about it um and so I um, and so I stopped the story earlier than I had intended because, um, you know, the, my original ending went a bit further and I was like, I'm not sure how to wrap this up in a way that is satisfying and meets the word requirements. And so I just, I just like lopped it off at, at a, at a, a natural, an abrupt but natural stopping point. And so there is, there's a little bit that goes on after the original ending. You know, I told myself that, oh, I was going to wait. And if people if like everyone was talking about how clever the ending was, I'd be like, oh yeah, 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 that was intentional. That's totally what I meant to do all along. But <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> then I can say, oh, actually, no, this is not, that was not the original ending. This, it does go on further and it, and it does. So um, I am happy to read um, a little bit from, um, or read that sort of original ending. All right, so uh, just to set this up, this happens, of course, towards the end of the story when um, the uh, eight that's sort of introduced in the um, in the beginning finds herself <laughs> finds herself uh, in a lab uh, attending um, a birth. I'll just put it that way. <clears throat> At first, I think I'm hyperventilating, but the breaths come from an open door to the lab. Rachel checks on Olivia, then brings a, steth a stethoscope back to me. She kneels by me, my shirt away from my belly, and I don't understand until I do and I want to die. She settles cool metal onto my abdomen and listens. When, I whisper, think about it, she whispers back. She heads to the lab, then turns back. While you still remember who you are, just make peace with what's happening. It makes everything easier. 
While I still remember who I am, I palm the stun gun, sliding it into my blazer sleeve. I make it to the doorway as Olivia grabs the top of the bed and grunts, strains, squeals. The aliens keep trying until they got us right, but they didn't stop there. We have every specimen for the last two years, obliterated. I think through molasses, past the buzzing. I think, I analyze. It won't let me. Nothing to analyze. We have no anatomical data. We have no idea what changes, what improvements they've made since Miami. We have no idea what they're preparing for. It's like a bell, the epiphany, the clarity returning me to myself. They are preparing for something our bodies aren't going to survive. I reach under Olivia to where a wiry, muscled arm has emerged from between her legs. When it anchors a fist into the mattress and begins to pull its hundred thousand volts at two very illegal amps. I hold it to the skin, baby soft, muscled like a laborer's until I gag on the roast turkey smell. Olivia rears back onto her haunches, spots the limp arm, and screams. She keeps screaming and flails until she falls off the hospital bed and scrabbles around like she's trying to get away from it. When I approach her, my stun gun, stun gun fools her enough that she pulls it to her chest. Please, kill me. It is the first time I'm speaking to the real Olivia Schultz. She slaps at the arm until I grab her. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. Hey, look at me. They're still on my head. Tell me everything. Tell me everything. And that's as far as I got. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, no, I was thinking there's some comparisons there that I could think of between uh, Get Out, which we've been talking about, which involves like these. Uh, I'm not going to care about spoilers in a movie that's been out for three years. You know, these um, these black citizens who've been kidnapped by a white family and then like the consciousness of their white ancestors are implanted in them. Right. So that there's two consciousnesses living in a head. Right. Which is sort of what you're talking about there with that. Um, that woman who's giving birth and she's like there, but there's another alien consciousness in there. So those are comparisons, but also your story, at least when I was reading about it, it didn't seem specifically about race in the way that like Tanana Reeve-Dew's story is about like two freedom writers going to Montgomery. And I wondered if maybe the, the maturing of this uh, genre is like the freedom to not explicitly write about race. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, um, that was part of the instruction that we were given when we were sort of, you know, charged with, okay, when you write this piece for this, you know, Black horror anthology, was that it does not have to distinctly be um, a racialized experience. Um, essentially, like, you're Black, you're writing horror, and so this is Black horror. Um, and so that was, you know, so th that was interesting, and I, I think that that, um, you know, that was, uh, uh, it, I think it was something that, um, was important for, um, you know, um, both of the editors, you know, you know, sort of with Peel's version, you know, for this anthology was the idea that, um, you know, like black horror can look many different ways, you know, everything from, you know, masquerades to mermaids, you know, in this anthology to, you know, um, dystopias and, you know, the end of the world. And so, um, you know, it's a really wide ranging anthology that just sort of covers, a, you know, so many different types, um, you know, terrifying scenarios. Yeah. So there are some, you know, icons of this genre, um, 
N.K. Jemison, uh, Nidhi Okafor, um, and uh, Jemison's story, Reckless Eyeballing, which I also find terrifying, opens the book. There's a great story called Eye and Tooth by Rebecca Roanhorse, that, and Out There Screaming, I think, comes from that story. And then I remember you telling me that you had a particular, you discovered new writers um, by being in this anthology writers whose work you hadn't been familiar with and who whose work you really loved. And I wonder if you could, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the other stories in the volume and, and how they're in conversation with your work and with Jordan Peele's aesthetic? Yes, you know, I um, I had encountered the Venus effect. This is a, this is not the story called by Violet Allen. This is not the story that she has in her her anthology, but it's a story that I had read before. I knew she was even in this anthology that I just absolutely love. It was it's a work of genius. And so when I saw her name in this anthology, I was very excited to see what would come of it. And um, and this is sort of this is very. Uh, you know what I love about um, um, Alan is that it's very funny and voicey in a very specific way, and in a way that seemingly works across on pretty much any genre. Um, and so, you know, and so with the Venus effect, it was sort of more sort of science fiction. And in this case, it's very much, you know, fantasy horror. And it just, it just works. I just find, I just find um, her writing to be just um, delightful. Yeah, you know, in this uh, collection that really just terrified me was uh, Flicker, which is a story about, um, you know, sort of the end of the world. And I was so terrified. Sorry, this uh, Flicker by L.D. Lewis. And I was so terrified by the story that I jumped ahead <laughs> to the end. Because <laughs> I was like, I cannot take, my, my heart is in my throat. I can't take this anymore. Um, and so, you know, so, you know, these are two very different stories, but um, in addition to the um, the mermaid story, you know, um, uh, Last uh, Siren by, um, let me try to get that name right, by Aaron E. Adams. Um, and so, the, you know, so yeah, so these are sort of very different stories um, and they're all, they're all just very their own way. And, you know, they, I don't know that they, um, they speak exactly to uh, Get Out, but, all of the stories that terrified me have this idea of displacement in the body. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure there's something to explore there, this idea that, um, you know, your body's not yours or your body can be taken from you at any point. And there's something very um, sort of awful and terrifying about it. And, you know, when I thought about, you know, when in the high you know, when we were sort of hearing about all of the um, uh, symptoms and the lasting effects, for me, the most terrifying one was this idea of losing sort of like the sharpness of my mind in some way, you know, people dealing with the brain fog. Like that was the most terrifying aspect of COVID for me. I thought, okay, I can deal with like the physical aspect. The idea that I would lose some of the sharpness of my mind was something that was terrifying to me. And so anything that sort of... Um, uh, uh, hints at or speaks to the sort of the removal from your own body just really um, you know, bothers me. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Um, so I know that you also, you know, my new colleague, Megan Giddings, um, a brilliant novelist, who has also spoken about kind of the intersection of horror and truth, especially for black people, like kind of, is it horror? Is it realism? So some people, of course, are turning to horror for escapism, but her comment um, and the kind of many echoes of that rippling through some of this work suggest the opposite. I'm 
curious about the surprising refuge that horror might provide in a world that has already got its dial turned up lately anyway. I mean, and also throughout history to, I mean, we're like a, we're like a fucking 12 out of 10. Um, so what does it mean to engage with our worst fears in a world that keeps manifesting them? There are several stories in this collection that essentially reimagine um, historical events or historical scenarios through this idea of like, oh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, this is black history, but the, um, we're, you know, we're going like the sort of perpetrator of you know, this terror on this black community of this black person is just the monster in the dark. But, you know, when you, you sort of dig into the history of it, so, you know, um, um, you know, it's like this story, for example, right? You know, set it was set in you know a, a very real um, black community in in you know outside of Indianapolis. Um, you know, you think of uh, Tatana Reed's story. Her story is also you know researched and you know set in. And so this idea that the, these you know, these events are so outrageous that you could assign them to near mythic monsters and they would still and still and still produce a story that makes logical sense like there's something to, to sort of speak of there of sort of like the the you know like the horror the sort of historical horrors that have been visited on um on black people in um, on american soil um i agree and i actually was thinking about uh that quote i read from tannery do earlier because, you know, Beloved is its in its own way a perfectly righteous horror story, you know? Yes, it is. And, you know, yeah, and like, you know, it's, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's just the idea that, uh, you know, any anytime you have any sort of extreme, right, there is almost, um, there's almost the impetus to assign it to something that is like otherworldly or sort of out of, um, out of the realm of you know the quote-unquote possible i say quote-unquote possible because everyone's ideas of possibilities um, are varied and so um and so yeah so it's really interesting to sort of see that uh, particularly the idea of ghosts being revisited in um a lot of uh uh these you know, historical backstories over and over again Especially as I was reading the first story in here, um, the reckless eyeballing, which which features um, a nefarious cop, Carl. Um, I was also thinking of Peter Hodevi's story, The Hull Case, in which um, which is about um, a couple and and the husband is um, a black veteran and the wife is um, a white um, nurse who had been in the armed forces and and they they have a story of being abducted by aliens and there's kind of a question of like who's going to believe that story right and who can they tell it to who are the authorities who would believe it so i don't know like again they're like the the, the otherworldly thing that you mentioned i think is like what was making me think of this right because there's ghosts and then there's also aliens and then there's this kind of nebulous space in between when you're like which one which one are you um and like if i even go and tell this and like and also your your comment about like um right? The bounds of plausibility, like this is not the same, but I think at the moments in when I'm being read by other people and they're like, is that actually plausible? It's actually always about something horrifying. Yeah. It's like, yeah, whatever horrible thing that you can imagine, someone has done that to another person, honestly. And there's something about that, that it's very terrifying. Um, and, you know, this idea that it is, um, 
uh, within like the <laughs> sort of within the boundaries of a human experience to have to have someone perpetrate this level of on another. And so, you know, now a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of very popular ideas of dystopia, right? Or ideas of like oh, how the world is going to end. And um, I think it's really interesting that that's what we're thinking about now. Like, okay, you know, like this is, you know, many different people's versions of how they imagine the world ending. And like, what does it mean that a lot of our fiction now imagines like it's all over? And like, what is it, you know, like, what is, like, what is sort of happening to us psychologically that that is where our culture imagination is? Like something about that is very disturbing. Yeah. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us and giving us this uh, glimpse into um, what Black Horror is doing now. And I'm excited to see what horrifying thing you write next. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, listeners, don't miss Out There Screaming, available now, as well as Leslie's fantastic story collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel, and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!